What is up, everybody? This is Ryan with the Sales and Marketing Build Freedom Podcast. Pretty excited today about an awesome episode that I have. And this trend has been like wildfire, which is causing larger organizations to scoop up and acquire companies left and right. VCs are even getting in the game, but it's a new marketing strategy that folks have, have effortlessly executed across and can be totally applicable for you building your personal brand, your company brand, your revenue growth, and so many different applicable areas that you can leverage in this episode. And I'm walking through with Kathleen Booth on it, who's had a great view and expertise on how to apply this and effectively implement it immediately. What's up, everybody? This is Ryan Staley, and you are listening to the Sales and Marketing Built Freedom Podcast where we share with you the underground ninja skills and tactics the top sales and marketing leaders are using to create financial and lifestyle freedom. And the question that everybody is asking is, how do I create financial and lifestyle freedom for me? That is the question and this show is the answer. Welcome everybody, this is Ryan Staley here with the Sales and Marketing Build Freedom Podcast. I have a very special guest with me today, Kathleen Booth. Kathleen is the RC chapter head of the Washington, D.C. area. She's a 16-year former, well, still, I guess, entrepreneur who owned her own marketing agency, is now the VP of marketing at clean.io, and at the same time, also runs the Inbound Success podcast. Welcome, Kathleen. Happy to have Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was kind of funny because we just started chatting over uh, some of the Revenue Collective, uh, I think the channel on there. And then the more I dug into it, I'm like, oh, you'd be awesome to have on the show just because of kind of your approach with Inbound, which is very, very intriguing. And one of the things that we talked about that I'd love you to get into today is really about you know, how the whole movement of companies taking the approach of becoming a media company first, and then in using that to leverage and drive sales. But before we get into that, I want to really hear like your background because you have a very unique background. You've been in both the corporate world and the startup world yourself and you're helping startups. So why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about you and kind of how you got to this point and kind of what fueled you in terms of making all those changes? Yeah, so I um, I did own a marketing agency for 11 years um, it was, it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, my husband was my business partner and I always say my greatest life achievement is that I am still married to him after 11 <laughs> years of owning a business together. Um, you know, and, and it was great. We learned a lot. We grew it. We had a ton of fun, but, um, you know, 2017, I really was ready for a change. And so we sold the company to a friendly competitor, I went over to that company for two years and it was interesting because I always said I wasn't going to go back into the agency world, but one of the reasons I went to that other company as part of the acquisition and I stayed even after my kind of transition period expired was that the owner uh, had a vision of building a media company around the agency. And I was like, ooh, that is interesting. And you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, even though I don't own my own business right now. I still love building things and I love that that early growth stage. And so it was a really fun chance to go into a business and really, you know, from the ground up, think about how would we like wrap a media company around an existing agency business. Um, so I spent two years doing that, learning a ton about the media industry and um, and what it means to, to build that sort of a business. And then I left and went in-house uh, and have been working in kind of the tech 
world since then. I'm currently at Clean.io, which is a digital engagement security company. Uh, and it's it's been a ton of fun. And I'm using what I learned about building a media business to uh, incorporate that into the marketing strategies that I'm, that I'm using for Clean. I remember you saying also when we talked before that a content writer was one of your first hires. Is that correct? That is. Um, so when, you know, I'm a serial startup marketer and it's not for everybody. I love it. Uh, but when you come in, I generally come in right around when a company gets its series A round of funding. And usually I am the first uh, head of marketing. Uh, in this case, I was the first full-time marketer on the team. They, they had an outsourced team they were working with and that we continue to work with. Um, but I did need to hire a person and you know, lots of folks out there in the marketing world were like, oh, you should start with a product marketer or a demand gen person. And I am a content first marketer <laughs> uh, for better or for worse. And so I hired a content manager. And for me, that's somebody who is trained as a journalist you know, has worked in the field of journalism and their key skills are not only writing, but knowing how to interview and knowing what questions to ask and, and to turn what they learn into great content. Okay. And I love that. You got, you got me intrigued a little bit now because a lot of folks that I've spoken to are, they go with demand gen first. That's yeah. like the number one route I've heard so many people kind of default to. So um, in light of that, and it's great because I just read the book, who not how? Have you have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's it's really designed around kind of what you're talking about in terms of hiring like an expert or a pro to leverage yourself. And as you do that, you continue to expand your vision, not just for you as a person, but as a company as well. And so uh, a lot of people that I've heard don't really go that route. So what's what's the logic behind that? Like you know, obviously we're coming from the, the viewpoint of kind of what, you, what we talked about to start is the marketing company, right? Like how do you build a media company, not marketing, how do you build a media company around an existing company or what they have? And so can you just walk through your thought process and, and why you decided to choose that route? Sure. So I will actually start, you brought up books. And so there are two books that were a really big inspiration for me, not only in how I approach marketing now, but for the work I did at Impact when I was working on building that media company. And those are um, both by Joe Polizzi, who used to, who was the founder of the Content Marketing Institute. And one is called Content Inc. And the other is called Killing Marketing. And he really did some early, very pioneering work in this, where he talked about this content-first approach. And and for me, what it, what it's about is going faster. And I just I truly believe that content today lies at the heart of all marketing, um, not just any content, great content. Like you really have to have great content now. Ten years ago, you could get away with checking the box and having a blog. Today, everybody's got a blog. Everybody's got content. So you really have to have fantastic content. And that weaves across so many different things you do. It's not just your blog. It's it's how you approach your, your email program, you know, like whether you have a newsletter, et cetera. It's you know, your social content. It, it's everything you do, you know, and not just written content, it's audio, video, et cetera. And so for me, you know, bringing on somebody that has a journalism background that understands what it means to create content and to look at content as a product and not a channel. Like that's a really really important distinction. Content as a product is what drives massive audiences and super loyal followings. Content as a channel can drive audiences. It can sometimes drive followings, but you're not going to get the level of loyalty, the le- and the habitual readership that you would get with content as a product. 
Okay, so let's you got me intrigued now. Let's go a little bit deeper on that. Uh, so content as a product, what do you mean by that? Can you define that and what that looks like for, let's say, a startup? Sure. So when you think about a media company, it could be, you know, a more traditional company like the Washington Post, or it could be more of a digital first media company like a Barstool Sports, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think about those companies, their content is the product for them. You know, that's what they're selling effectively. When you buy a subscription, when uh, or when you join an organization like that, you're you're joining for the content. And I'm going to get to in a minute why those word that word subscription and and joining are, are kind of important, but. Um, you're coming for the content because the content is so good. You can't get it anywhere else. You really love the content they're putting out and you expect that you're going to come back regularly, right? Like the difference between content as a channel and content as a product is when content is a channel, it might get you to a company's website, but you're not going to come back every day or every week when content is treated as a channel. When content is treated as a product like it is in the media business, the whole point of a media business is to drive habit, to make the consumption of content a part of the fabric of somebody's daily life. So you purchase a subscription, you get it every day, um, you're constantly coming back. That's what I mean by treating content as the product. It's about creating content that's so good, not only that somebody might theoretically want to pay for it, and that might not be your customers. It could be, you know, if if you build enough of a media business, you might get sponsors for your content. You might have people wanting to take out advertising on your site. Mm -hmm. You may never do any of that. You may never charge anybody for it, but putting on kind of taking that approach that our content should be so good that somebody would want to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then also looking at it as almost a, a recurring model. What will make somebody continue to come back? How, how are we going to drive a habit amongst our audience that they constantly want to return for more of our content? Okay, and, and I, I think you're dead on with that. You know, like, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but like the hustle, like I, start, I read that every day now. That's part of my daily habit. You know, first thing in the morning, I check it out. And before we kind of get into like the landscape of what's going on, uh, and that's in this the kind of media space, I love to hear like if you have a framework or what you've noticed as like kind of a reoccurring pattern of what people do or what media companies are doing to drive that continuous behavior besides just good content. Because I have some ideas, but obviously I don't have the level of uh, expertise that you have in here. So I'd love to, to hear what, what you think of that. Yeah. So it, you're right. It is about more than just creating good content. I mean, I think to me, that's the that's the price of entry into the game, right? You have to have great content. Um, but the really, the best media companies and the best, you know, regular non-media companies that are thinking like media companies, what they're doing to become super successful is they are actually injecting more brand, more personality into their content they're they're hyper focused on the right kind of audience for them and not just any audience. And so what I mean by that is they're they're building kind of a higher cause is a difficult word, but but a higher purpose behind their content. They're really invested in what they stand for. And the distinction I always draw is between subscriptions and memberships. So And I recently talked about this on LinkedIn. The Washington Post is a fantastic example of this. The Washington Post for many years, for a long time, has been one of the leading media companies in the country. They produce a fantastic newspaper. I was a subscriber to the Washington Post when I lived in Washington, D.C. 
um, I got to a point in my life where I didn't really have time to read it all the time. And so I stopped subscribing. And that's really what subscription is. A subscriber is a person who pays for access to content because they're looking to regularly derive value out of that content, right? And so as soon as they stop regularly deriving value, they're going to churn. So in my case, it was, I don't have time to read it. In other, somebody else's case, it might be, I don't like the content anymore. But whatever it is, I'm not getting value on a regular basis, so I'm no longer going to pay. Now, fast forward, the Washington Post, I think, I don't know how long ago it was, a couple of years ago, introduced a new slogan that was, democracy dies in darkness. And it's still the same great newspaper, but they they created this brand around that, this higher purpose to their content. And it was not just about, I want to know what the news is every day. It was when you subscribe to the Washington Post, you're making this statement that you believe that good journalism is important for the health of democracy, right? So they, they created this emotional tie with their brand that was bigger than the content itself. And so I I resubscribed, you know, and and I did so knowing I wasn't going to have time to read the content and I genuinely probably read that paper twice a month now and I get it every single day, but I will not give up my subscription because I so believe in in what they stand for and that's really what that is is membership and not subscription. I have joined the Washington Post Membership is an emotional tie. You're you're joining not because you want to regularly derive value. You're joining because you believe in what that brand stands for and you want to associate yourself with it. So that's a really important distinction because joining and membership, first of all, it, it ha- suffers from far lower churn. It drives a much more intense level of loyalty and passion. And people become much more vocal brand advocates for things that they join or become members of than things they're simply subscribing to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's almost like uh, a movement, right? That, it is. That, that people emotionally attach to that, that is which is interesting that you're like, I only do the damn thing like twice a month now, but I still get it because you're attached to, to what they believe, right? Yeah. And also I would say the one the one thing I would add to that is that really, really savvy brands, that um, loyalty and that passion creates an opportunity. And so really, really good brands, what they're doing is they're they're spinning that off and they're building communities mm-hmm. in conjunction with their content you know, machines, their content businesses. And so where you can also build a community that just, that just reinforces brand loyalty and, and customer longevity and the community itself becomes almost like you're a channel for you because it, it is your word of mouth base, your evangelists. So what I got just breaking it, just kind of recapping what you have, you got, you know, first of all, you got to just create something that they want to see continuously for value. Right. But then also you attach it emotionally to something that the people you're serving believe strongly in or want to support. And then you filter that into a community. So I guess bi-directional or back and forth versus just like a newsletter, which is one way, right? You got that kind of bi-directional communication. And so like, how do you, like you're, you're kind of building this out right now, I would assume, right? For what you're doing. I'm in the very early days, but this is why, this is why you can start to see hiring somebody to just exclusively focus on content is really important because step one, you started it, you you said it just now, step one is to create amazing content, content that's so good that people want to keep coming back for it. None of the other stuff can happen until you do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, then you got the movement and then what about, so what about the community? Right. Cause like, what, what do you recommend or what are you seeing working really well there? 
in just from your perspective? Sure. So when I was at Impact, this, where I was building the media business, uh, we also built a community. And by the time I left, we had about, I think, 5,000 marketers. And it was a Facebook community. And And I think the landscape has even changed in the two and a half, three years since I left there, where you know now, were I to start it all over again, I would build my community on Slack. You know, you own your you own your community when it's there. Whereas in Facebook, you don't necessarily own it. But you also need to think about where your where your people live, right? You want you want to make it easy for them. You know, with community, it's a great opportunity um, if you use it correctly. So there are plenty of organizations that have started communities, but they're thinly veiled sales channels, <laughs> you know, where where the sponsoring organization is constantly in there promoting its own content or trying to drive registrations for events or what have you. I think every now and then a little bit of that is okay. But for community to really work and to take off, it needs to feel like it's owned by the members of the community and not by the organization sponsoring it. And so, you know, you've really been successful building a community, not only when the, your numbers grow, but when you can step back and be uh, a little bit less heavy-handed in moderation. So with the community that we built at Impact in the beginning, you know, we had a, a director of audience engagement and community who spent a lot of time in that Facebook group, making sure that if somebody posted a question, it got an answer, um, encouraging people to post things, et cetera, like really trying to get that organic involvement going. And then it was fascinating to see how over time the community really just sort of took over for her and it started self-policing. So if somebody wasn't following the community rules, people would, would note, would, you know, post that or say something, you know, you didn't really need a moderator to start conversations or to make sure somebody got an answer because that there was enough engagement. And I think that comes from people seeing value out of the community. And that's why it's so important not to make the community too self-promotional because people aren't going to see the value and then it's not going to snowball like it should yeah they don't want to get spammed right yeah but so uh, you kind of you touched on a bit a little bit you said facebook as a potential medium and then you said slack is kind of what you recommend but obviously it depends where your audience lives what's what's your thought process on you know slack over i mean there's even paid there's ones. so many yeah patreon there you could build your own platform there's platforms that are built just for communities there's so many options i think you have to weigh a couple things. You've got to, first of all, look at how tech savvy is your team. Are, are you going to, do you have a team that's capable of building out a platform and maintaining it and and troubleshooting all of that? Or do you want to just build on somebody else's platform where you don't have to deal with all of that? You also need to factor in, again, where your audience lives. Um, I'm personally partial to building communities on platforms where my audience is already spending a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm, I'm biased. I, the, the communities on which I'm the most active are on Slack. And that's because I'm in there 24-7 for work. And so to participate in the communities I'm in, it's not asking me to leave there and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, if your community is already spending a lot of time on Facebook, that could be the right, you know, the right platform for you. Um, it really just depends. But but there are also plenty of very successful communities that have been built on other platforms that people don't spend a lot of time on. And, and certainly if you're going to take that route, you need to be delivering tremendous value to drive, to get people to leave the places they're already you know, using their time and come to where you are. Yeah. I mean, I love the concept where you're talking about, about eliminating friction though, just so like it's already part of their day. Yeah. Right? You know, on Slack for a lot of folks in the B2B world, I would say probably not jumping on Facebook as much. I mean, LinkedIn had a tremendous opportunity, but they didn't really execute on it. 
with their yeah. groups. And so, um, so yeah, so that's really interesting. And then, yeah, there's a lot of folks that leverage Patreon as well. So how long did it take when you, when you gave that example about, uh, creating a self-sustaining community, right? How long did it take or how long does it take from your perspective to kind of build that up and, and get that level of engagement? So, you know, it obviously depends on how large of an audience you're going after. In that case, the community that we built was for marketers. And I would say the first six months, it grew really, really fast. And that's because, you know, it's the low-hanging fruit. You're you're going after your friends and your family and your first-party connections. It's when you run out of those first-party connections that things start to slow down a little bit. And that's where it does help to have somebody really focused on the community and not only on moderating it, but on growing it. And, and then, so I would say about another year, about a year and a half in was when I really felt like things just started to click and the community was starting to run itself. Mm -hmm. But I think if you, you know, you might be targeting a much more niche audience, in which case it could take longer, but it actually could be quicker. So I'm a part of another group. Um, I'm a member of something called the Cybersecurity Marketing Society, which is on Slack. Um, and that one took off incredibly fast. And I think it's because it was so niche. So it was like only for marketers who only work in cybersecurity and everybody had so much in common and was just so happy to find a group of, of like-minded peers that it, it was like months and not a year and a half. Nice. Well, how many people are in that group now? I don't know how many are in that one. That's not my group. I certainly can't take credit for it. Um, but it's, I mean, it's grown hundreds, if not to over a thousand people. Okay. Yeah. So, so what would you say is more important than building an email list or building a community? I pick one to cast. <laughs> I would say building a community because you can always get the emails from your community members. Um, you know, and and especially because people are pretty transient these days, and so as people change jobs and their emails change, if they're in your community, you have a way of staying with them. But it's building a community on a platform you own. To me, that was the thing I forgot to mention earlier. Was and that's one of the reasons I like Slack. You know, if you build it on Facebook, they can change the rules of the game any day. Um, yeah, there's been a it, lot of a lot of folks complaining about that on Facebook this year, especially what happened with the elections and just how fast things change. They yeah. And there's that whole Apple privacy aspect that's going wild as well. So, so why don't you walk me do this, Kathleen? Because you brought up a lot of great examples. Can you walk through an example like A to Z on what an example you've seen? And you don't have to say the company name or whatever, but where they've they've gone through the process, right? They they've dropped in the content, they built a community, and then what's the outcome they've got from customers in terms of? Reducing churn, increasing revenue, increasing customer base. I'd just love to hear sure. kind of the story around that. Yeah. So I'm actually going to use a pretty well-known example that I was not involved in at all. Um, but I think people it'll help people see what I'm talking about when I when I explain what it means to think like a media company. So I would say one of the the best examples that has recently been in the news quite a bit is HubSpot. Mm-hmm. So HubSpot really started out doing almost exactly what I talked about, thinking of content as the product. They actually, if you go back and read the case studies of very, very early HubSpot days, they started blogging and doing content marketing before the product was ready. And so they were actually building an audience before they had a product. And this is a hallmark of the media company model is you build the audience. And then if you have an audience, it opens up a world of possibilities in terms of the products you can sell to that audience. 
Now, in the media company world, there are some really great consumer level examples of this. The ones I love to cite are like Chip and Joanna Gaines and the Magnolia Network. Mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow with Goop. These are people who built a massive audience following. And then, you know, you look at like Chip and Joanna Gaines. They were like, let's start a rug company and sell rugs. Let's sell house paint. Let's open stores in downtown Waco. Now they're starting a separate media brand that's all their own. And all of these things, and there there are many, many more businesses they have started. All of these things were possible because they built the audience first. And the audience was literally there going, oh my God, I will buy whatever you make, right? I love I love you. I love everything you do. I am so, I, I associate myself with you. It's that feeling of belonging, right? Beyond just subscription. Um, and I'm standing here ready to buy your paint, your rugs, your, your donuts, you know, your lifestyle line at Target, what have you. I'm in for all of it. Um, and they, and they had, now they have a magazine and a book. And so, so that's a great example. Um, and Gwyneth Paltrow did the same thing with Goop. And so HubSpot started by building out great content. They, that served a couple of purposes. It, it built them an audience that when they had a product ready, they were, they had people with whom to go to market. Um, but it also drove massive traffic for them and it has continued to do so over the years. They've always been very aggressive in their approach towards content. They have a really robust editorial department. How many, if I can interrupt you, how many people do they have in their editorial department? Gosh, I don't know the exact numbers now, but it's it's a considerable number. Okay. Um, and here's what I think is really interesting about HubSpot is that company has grown unbelievably uh, in the last several years. I mean, they've grown unbelievably throughout their history, but particularly in the last several years. And if you're a HubSpot and, and you're looking at the growth you've had and recognizing that you still want to grow at that pace, Right there are only so many pieces of low-hanging fruit (laughs) that you can pick off the tree. And they've already done the content thing. You know, they've got audio content, video content, written content. They've done it all. They've written about just, just about everything. In fact, we used to joke that Google anything and HubSpot will come up like in the number one spot. And even if it has nothing to do with marketing or sales sometimes, right? And so what I think is really fascinating that they did is they, they looked at their situation and they thought, we need to keep driving top of funnel awareness for mm-hmm. our products. And, and so that's really getting in front of new people. And HubSpot is focused on small and medium businesses. Eventually, they might go to enterprise. I don't know, but they've had tremendous success with small and medium businesses. And so how do you continue to stay in front of that market? Well, what you do if you're HubSpot is you look at who else has that audience already, right? Because you're really talking about building audience. They're thinking like a media company, how do we build audience beyond the audience we already have? And so what they did recently, you probably saw it in the news, is they acquired The Hustle. And you mentioned The Hustle earlier as being a a media brand that you really enjoy following. Um, And The Hustle in and of itself was, was very savvy about how it did this. It built a massive audience by sending out, and it was email first, really, in this case, not blogs first, but same idea, great content. They built out a massive audience. Once they had the audience, then they started to introduce the products. They had the Hustle Trends, which is a, a, a premium offering. So again, it's build the audience first, then introduce the product. Content is the product. And HubSpot looked at the hustle, looked at the the audience they've built, the loyal following, the, the people who are members, not subscribers, members of Hustle Trends. And they saw that as, you know, this is an organization that knows how to treat content as the product and will help us drive massive top of funnel growth. So they acquired them. 
I was recently listening to a podcast interview uh, with um, the the founder of The Hustle, and he was talking about how the reason HubSpot acquired them was that they recognized that it would take HubSpot too long to build and to hire and create the kind of organization that that truly can produce the level of content and content as a product that The Hustle was already doing. Mm. So it's it, they acquired them for exactly the reasons I explained, you know, the same approach of content as a product, high quality, building a following, building loyalty, creating a community, et cetera. Yeah, well, and to, to back up with some of the numbers behind what you're talking about, I think they have like 1.5 million email subscribers and then 18,000 people bought or purchased the Trends news, newsletter, 18,000 members, if you will. Because I actually bought the Trends newsletter. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. But I think it's like $300 a year. And then on top of it, then they have a Facebook group, which is the community component that you kind of talked about, podcast and, and other other things involved with that. So um, that's a great example. And then they got bought for, I believe, $35 million. Yeah, it's, it was it was a lot of money for a little company that started as a newsletter, and and there are plenty of other examples. You know, like Stripe acquired Indie Hackers. That's a the really interesting play. You know, Stripe is a as a payment processor, and Indie Hackers is a community of people starting side hustles. But it's the same concept of like Stripe thinking, well, who's who are the next top of funnel? How are we going to get in front of more people that need payment processing? Well, you know, we've pretty much saturated the existing audience. So the next frontier is people who are starting new businesses who don't already have a payment processor. Well, who, who's got a following of people who are starting new businesses? Indie hackers. So it starts to make sense. And then you see uh, the venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, which is really, really savvy. Um, you know, they're venture capitalists. They just announced recently they're starting a separate meeting media brand to get them in front of a bigger audience because they see a top of funnel, the interest that that creates. So there's a definite movement afoot, particularly in the tech and the SaaS worlds where the lines are really starting to blur between, you know, product companies and and media companies. And I think that's only going to become more so the case. And and one of the really interesting measures of this was... um, Recently, so WordPress has a platform called WordPress VIP, which is their enterprise hosting. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, that was used by a lot of publishers, a lot of media companies. And WordPress recently acquired Parsley. It's P-A-R-S-E dot L-Y. And Parsley is a content um, intelligence platform. And it traditionally was also used by publishers and media companies to get kind of more information and analytics out of their content. So the two of them, Automatic, the parent company of WordPress VIP, acquired Parsley, and they released this data upon the acquisition that showed over time, I think it was from 2018 to 2020, the number of media brands purchasing the two platforms and the number of marketers purchasing the two platforms. And in 2018, it was more media than marketers. And in 2020, it is by far more marketers than media customers. And so that that showed a fascinating shift in the landscape where marketers are really beginning to to think that way and to put that hat on of like, I'm a media company now. What's the tech stack I need? How's this going to change my approach? How am I going to staff up for it, et cetera? Awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, so it's it's really funny that you talk about some of this because like a real world example I can think of is I work with multiple companies and advising them on, on scaling revenue. And a, an example of a couple of folks that I, I spoke to, you know, one company had $6 million in revenue and are growing at 40% per year. 
and they had two sales reps, right? Another company had 2 million, both software companies, right? 2 million in revenue. And basically they have um, like six sales reps, right? But the company with the two sales reps was growing at a really, really strong clip because they had an awesome inbound engine of, of leads and just customers interested. So whereas the other company didn't. So, I mean, just shows how powerful that is. You got three X the amount of revenue, similar solutions, similar product cost, you know, all of that. But that was one of the key differentiation points. So I could see kind of what you're talking about with like the power of that if you master it and then really have that to drive that type of funnel growth. Yeah. And it is, I mean, let's be honest. It's, it, it is a long-term investment you're making when you, when you do this. Um, and it can seem kind of intimidating, especially for a smaller business. And so what I would say to somebody listening, like, you know, like I work in a series A company, we don't have a giant budget to do this. Mm-hmm. We're not a hub spot where we can invest in and, and just instantly acquire a company like that. Um, and so that's why I've hired this content manager because it's, it is about starting where, where you are and recognizing that you need to in, improve the quality of your content and dedicating resources to that. And then secondarily to that, starting to increase the volume and really thinking about what are those content products you're going to put out. So for me, it's, you know, I have my regular blog. We're starting some product blogs at the same time, but I'm also starting a podcast. I'm starting a separate content, written content series on my site, which is going to be a series. So again, it's how do we get people coming back, building a habit. We've also invested in our newsletter and really changing it. The typical business newsletter is like, you know, executive summaries of all your most recent blogs. But what I like to think through is how can we build personality into this? How can we really speak to the audience in a way that they start to look forward to receiving this newsletter and and think of it as, as almost a letter from us to them? Um, so those are just some of the things I'm thinking about. But if somebody's with a smaller company, they don't have a huge budget and they're like, well, how would I do this? Those are the things I think you can begin to focus on at those early stages. Well, and, and what's your thoughts about like hiring a content writer like offshore? You know, someone in, in that area, if you're trying to be cost conscious versus like you don't have the, I don't even know what it costs for a, a you know, a highly, highly qualified content writer. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Well, so I think there's this misnomer actually that, and I see it all the time in these groups I'm a part of, somebody says, I I need to hire a content writer. I need somebody with experience in my industry who can do this or that. I don't ever do that. I hire journalists Mm -hmm. for these roles. And the person that I just hired uh, graduated, I think two years ago from college with a degree in journalism. And he's been working as a freelance writer. And it's the journalism training that makes him so good at it. Because when you're trained as a journalist, you don't need to be a subject matter expert. You're taught how to ask the right questions and extract the good information out of somebody else's brain and distill that into a really good story, right? And that's the makings of great content. He can become a subject matter expert over time, but I'm more concerned with like getting him to ask those great questions of the people that I already know I have on the team who are experts in the topic and getting what's in their brains and out onto paper because they don't have time to write. So I, I don't personally choose to offshore because, you know, a recent journalism student, you don't have to pay tons and tons of money. I mean, you need to pay them competitively, but it's relatively reasonably priced compared to hiring somebody who's like a, a technical writer or what have you. Um, and, and maybe there are cases where that makes sense, but for me, it's, it's those journalism skills that are so important and that investment pays off big time. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, I, we're, we're coming up on time. So we covered a lot in a lot of different areas, but I thought it was, I think it's highly valuable just with how much the landscape's changing and how this is getting accelerated. And so where can people find you? Where, where can they see more about what you're doing with your podcast, uh, with clean.io and just in general? Sure. So you can find lots of information about me at my personal website, which is kathleen-booth.com. Um, and that has links to my, you know, different social accounts and, and the podcast. Uh, if you just Google the inbound success podcast, you'll find it. It's, it's published pretty much everywhere podcasts exist. <laughs> and then, um, clean.io is the URL for the company I work at right now. Excellent. Well, it was awesome having you on. And, uh, I, that's why I love doing these podcast episodes because you never really know where sometimes the episodes are going to go. And I, I think you crushed it. I think you did an awesome job of of kind of bringing to the surface a lot of trends that people are aware of that are there, but they don't really focus on and the impact that they could drive for the business, the individual, for their brand, or um, just the movement they want to create. So, Well, thank you. Can you tell I'm super passionate about the topic? Yeah, yeah, you love it. It's awesome. It's it's great. So, Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you for spending the time with me today. I know that time is one of the most valuable resources, so I truly honor and appreciate you coming along this journey with me. One of the things that I wanna ask you is if you really truly enjoyed this and know someone that this can make an impact on, please share this episode with them. If you're on a journey for financial and lifestyle freedom, it is always exponentially better if we're building a tribe with like-minded people who are on the same journey. In addition, I have an amazing PDF for you that could be career changing in terms of the content. Essentially what it is are the top 10 questions that every big customer is asking behind closed doors that no one is telling you about. I'll put a link for it in the show notes. So check it out. It's my free gift for you for being a part of this launch and being a part of this journey with me. And I hope to see you soon.